This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 4th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Did the United States pay a ransom of $400 million to Iran? That is the accusation. Pallet of money to Iran freed prisoners from Iran. Was it a quid pro quam? 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 Eighth biggest city in Iran? Huh? Therefore, fantastic pun? Nothing? All right. Well, nothing is what administration officials say to the idea of a ransom. Apparently, this was a payment due from 1979 over some jets that weren't delivered. It wended its way through court, and the United States pretty much thought it was getting off easy by only paying $400 million. The Iranians were suing for $10 billion. The timing did not look good. But when you think about it, it's hard to establish what's a ransom and what's just commerce. When food falls on the floor, there's a five-second rule. But with a ransom, how does it work? I say maybe like touch football, seven alligators, right? All right, here's your money. Here's the prisoners. One alligator, two, it's a ransom. Three alligator, four, still a ransom. Five alligator, six, still a ransom. Seven alligator, not a ransom anymore. Okay, be on your way. Maybe what the United States should do is not just deny that it was a ransom, it wasn't a ransom, just emphasize how little $400 million really is. It's not even half the price of a new baseball stadium that they do not need in Arlington, Texas. It is less, $400 million less, Less than half the worldwide gross of the Hotel Transylvania 2, less than half the value of the Jacksonville Jaguars, less than 150th the value of the app WhatsApp. So it may be a ransom, it may not be a ransom, but really, it's just a pittance. Quid pro quam. That's a $400 million pun right there. On the show today, I spiel about other Republican candidates. But first, Farhad Manju is here to discuss how the web helps us, warps us, and continues to define us. The philosophical discipline of ontology essentially deals with how we know what we know, the nature of being, the nature of existence. And it is a long and storied field. Many of the texts are impenetrable to outsiders, but it is a great question through the ages. But now we have an answer to how we know what we know. Facebook. It's in our Facebook feed. Well, Facebook has been rejiggering its feed, and with every slight change of the algorithm, there are actually massive implications for the mass of human knowledge. Farhad Manju covers all these issues for the New York Times. He's the technology columnist for the New York Times, and he writes about Facebook and lots of other things and kind of how we get our information. How are you doing, Farhad? Good. How are you? Thanks. Good to be here. It's great to have you. So recently there was an announcement of a tweak of what shows up in our feeds. Could you summarize what that tweak was? They basically said they're going to have more personal stuff, more stuff from your friends and family, 
and not as much news stuff. Or, or news content will be a lower priority in your feed. Now, if, I, if they were a technology company and there were a whole bunch of different, um, different social media applications and some went with that kind of feed and some went with a more newsier feed and we were all diffusely spread about them, I'd say, fine, do what you want. Yeah. The problem is like some giant percentage of people really rely on Facebook for what they know. Right. Uh, Huge percentages of Americans look to Facebook as their only or primary source of news, and it is the most used thing digitally. It's something like we spend, you know, on average, people spend like an hour a day on Facebook, which is less than TV, but not anything else. Right. And it's less than TV, but I I know there are comparisons to when there were three networks. And maybe you could make the case when I Love Lucy and the Ed Sullivan Show were supreme that they were getting a greater percentage of American eyeballs. But you couldn't make the case with any one newspaper, I don't think, at any one time. I mean, what I'm saying is I think that Facebook, if it wants to define itself as a disseminator of news, is the most powerful disseminator of news America has ever known. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it extends beyond America, I think. I think that's going to be true of pretty much the whole planet except possibly for China, where they don't have a site. But other than, I mean, sort of the non-China world, that should be true. Okay, so let's assess them. Let's just go inside Facebook and not think about ethics. Think about their business model. Do you think this was a smart move to emphasize the personal? Yeah, I mean, it's what people think of when they think of Facebook. I think that's the core reason people go to Facebook. And so when we at the New York Times or at people at Slate or elsewhere sort of think about what to offer, there's this, uh, you know, on the front page or, you know, the main part of their their news uh, property there's this mix of like giving people what's going to be popular and giving people what you think they should read. I mean, mm-hmm. that's sort of like the ethics of journalism. Facebook doesn't think about it that way. I think Facebook's business and the way that it sees itself is is about sort of giving people what they want. And they feel like, I mean, I think they, they have numbers to back this up. Baby pictures are more popular than, than news stories. Um, They think they need a mix, and so you'll see that mix, but the mix is sort of tilted toward updates from your friends and family. But actually, if they were only in it for giving people what they want, I think they'd go more entertainment. I mean, all the broadcast networks are about giving people what they want, and the percentage of news that they give is, you know, half an hour a day and an hour on Sundays for the most part. No, I mean, I think people want a mix, right? I think the way people see Facebook, and Facebook, he's used this analogy of like the the replacement for the morning newspaper, but it's a morning newspaper that has news from the world and news about your friends. And I think people think about Facebook that way. Like it's not, I don't think people think about it as the place where they find only their friends, stuff about their friends or only stuff about, um, you know, the world. Like it's really become the case that news is now, you know, much more than like what what happens in the world. It's also like what happened to your friends. Will you and I get a mix of harder news than our aunts or assuming our aunts are only tangentially uh, interested in the news, Will? Yeah, I mean, so I think this is the biggest thing, like this is the most difficult thing to sort of understand about Facebook, which is that it's hyper-personalized. Yeah. So it's really hard to determine, like we say, oh, they're uh, lowering the priority of news, but they're doing that kind of in the aggregate and for individual feeds, it's really responds to kind of what you do 
what you click on, the kinds of stories you like, the kinds of people you respond to. And so sort of overall, like you may notice no change and that may be because you only consume news. And so that's like a higher signal in your in your feed. How important are the people who we follow? If they're posting news stories, are we going to get more news stories? Yes. If they're posting more news stories, it's seen as like personal content. I think what they're what they're de-emphasizing is stuff like if you follow the New York Times, uh, links posted by the New York Times will be of lower priority in your feed. If a Facebook user actually hasn't clicked on any news feeds, how do they decide if they get a New York Times or an LA Times or a Chicago Tribune or whatever article? It's if you haven't ever sort of interacted with like, uh, you know, followed uh, a certain publication, I don't think you will get that publication's content unless one of your friends shares it. And if you are close with that person, you might get it. One of the things people don't understand about Facebook is that you don't see everything from your friends. Right. So, you know, most people have hundreds of friends. And if each one posts one thing, that'll overwhelm your your feed. So they, you know, select everything based on, you know, what you've done. Have you met the individual? I know an algorithm's an algorithm, but a human being programs the algorithm. Do you know these people? Are they good people? <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be good people. Okay. I think there's a lot of reason to be, I think skeptical is the wrong word, but just be sort of wary of the process behind this. Like consumers of news have gotten a sense of how news is made in the world. You know, it's like editors, it's like humans, basically. Humans making a choice based on sort of their commercial and sort of journalistic sensibilities. You, You expect what a front page New York Times story should be and what and when it sort of deviates, it sort of surprises you. I think that we don't know the process behind Facebook's sort of selection. I think what's worrisome about it is both that it's it's secret, yeah. so you don't really know. Like you asked, you know, if you if you follow someone, and will you get that person's links? Yes, yeah, sometimes. Other times, you won't. You might not know why, and Facebook might not know why because uh, the computer's deciding based on sort of a whole bunch of factors. So that's one thing. It's secret and it's personalized, so it's difficult to figure out. The other thing is that they say they rely on surveys uh, of, you know, random uh, Facebook users to decide sort of what people want. That's like the human element in, in the feed. Right. But also the people who work there are of a particular type. They are some of the wealthiest people in the world. They are mostly white. They are sort of highly educated, probably very liberal Yes, Uh, but except for the wealthy part, that is true of the people who decide what's on the front page of the New York Times and what's in the rundown of CBS Evening News, too. That hasn't changed. Yeah, that's true, except these people, I would say the other difference is that they just have a lot more power. That's the thing. I mean, that's what, to me, I don't know, you tell me. It doesn't seem like on the continuum of capitalistic enterprises, Facebook doesn't seem particularly rapacious or evil. They don't have the don't be evil thing like Google does. You tell me if I'm wrong. They seem to, you know, just judging by the somewhat naive comments of Zuckerberg, they seem to have their heart in the right place and they're geniuses and they're doing a good job and people actually like Facebook. It's like, fine. As far as capitalistic enterprises, I can't really fault them for anything except they're so freaking huge. It has huge societal implications. Yeah, that's the thing. And if there were... uh 
a very popular uh, news channel that was in the tank for one of the candidates. Yes. I mean, there arguably is. And, you know, society sort of works. Yeah. It Because we sort of understand the biases and we discount for them. Yeah, yeah. And the market corrects. Yes. Because there's a market. Right. Yeah. The difficulty with Facebook is that you don't really know what the biases are, both because, like, what I see in my feed is different from yours, so it's difficult to sort of make cross-reader comparisons. And also, like, the people behind it are, a little bit secretive like mm-hmm. you don't Zuckerberg has sort of spoken about his politics and so you kind of know where he's coming from but the other people who make newsfeed they're anonymous so what happened with uh, conservatives had a big meeting with Facebook were they p- suppressing conservative news I think this was a little bit of an overhyped story but one that was in a weird way like brought to light some other problems with Facebook so there's a little part of the site uh, that's called Trending News, and it this is the one part of sort of what you see on Facebook that human beings, human editors actually select and, and decide, you know, what to put there. They see what's going on in Facebook, and then they say, oh, this story's trending, and they put a headline on it. There were some accusations from some of those people that they didn't put uh, stories from conservative sites or stories that were, uh, you know, of a right-leaning bent. They did. They either didn't put them in, in there or they sort of just disfavored them. And, you know, some of those accusations seem to be true. I don't think it was a systematic thing. And also, I mean, the other thing to remember is that this is just not a very used part of the site. It's not something like, it's not sort of the main part of your feed. Yeah, I didn't know it existed right. until I read about the conservatives upset that this thing existed and yeah. wasn't servicing them well. But I think it, it raised this larger question of like, can Facebook change what's happening in American politics? Like, I think there's good evidence that if Facebook wanted to, it could sway elections. Like, I'm not sure it could sway a presidential election, maybe, but it could certainly sway like a city election or like a state, uh, various kinds of state elections. But, you, you know, presidential elections sometimes come down to a couple counties and a couple states. Right. So if it could sway a city election, it maybe can sway a close yeah, presidential election, it's a true. swayable one. They have uh, data scientists who work at Facebook uh, a few years ago in the 2012 election, they did an experiment. If you voted that day on election day, you could say you voted. Um, they would show some people that you voted, you, you as their friend. They would show my friends that I voted. That would, they found, sort of increase the likelihood that the people who saw that I voted would vote would go out and actually vote. Right. So So you could sort of spark a certain kind of person if you turn that on for only people who buy what they click on and their preferences are liberal or conservative. Right. So they did it in a randomized way, but right. They could easily figure out your politics and, you know, show those people, you know, on the right or the left that their friends voted and then sort of increase the likelihood that those people would go to the polls. The thing that worries me is not so much that, look, if I want to, if, if I know about news and I opt into the news, and maybe I shouldn't use me as an example, a regular person who's somewhat interested in the news, they kind of know the big channels to opt into. And if one of the big newspapers or an outlet that's producing news does a story, they'll find out about it. It's that part of finding out about the news that they don't know to look for. And, you know, historically, a good newspaper will assign someone to an offbeat topic. But there are other times when, you know, an actual story that some obscure paper has done catches fire for some reason. And I'm wondering about if Facebook is good enough at pointing a finger at what we thought was obscure that either through their feeling of the news or their algorithm or in some way they're good at saying, pay attention to this. 
it happens, but it's not because of anything they're doing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you notice stories from that you might not have noticed in the absence of Facebook getting popular on Facebook, getting popular online generally. I mean, we call these like viral stories. You notice that happening. I don't think fa- Facebook is itself sort of prioritizing that. And I'm not sure that they could. I think the difficulty for them is that their main goal is to have you spend more time on the site. So they're not going to show you things that you don't like, right. which is the like one of the tenets of like journalism is that you should do that. Um, well, you should make people eat their vegetables, but also don't give them boiled Brussels sprouts. Yeah. You know, put some nice garlic butter sauce on that broccoli. Right. But if you gave them candy all the time, yes. like you would just have a much happier group of people, right? In the short run, yeah. In the short run. Yeah. The people that I've talked to there think more about these things now than they used to. First of all, because they're bigger and they get more scrutiny when they make changes like this, they do talk to newspapers and you know news organizations, so they do understand sort of that there are stakeholders here. Um, but are those people making the choices? Do they have a news background? Not generally. Yeah. Most of the people who are making the choices are tech product people, tech engineers. They're not people who are, have been steeped in journalism. I recently interviewed a political scientist who talked about the false notion of the ideal boy. He was saying, we don't say an ideal boy is one who doesn't need to be taught to read but just knows how to read. That's a ridiculous notion. Mm -hmm. So let's think about what the ideal algorithm or the ideal way for Facebook to present what a user gets. Is there even such a thing? I'm not just saying that no matter what they choose, there'll always be downsides. I just come back to the fact that if everyone is using this instead of 10 equivalents of it, you're going to have mistakes. It's going to be worse for democracy than if Facebook had five good competitors, each with their own little version of the algorithm. Yeah, no, I think that's the real thing. Like, I don't think there is an ideal version of uh, the algorithm. Just there's there's no ideal, like, newspaper front page or ideal, like, top story on a cable news network. The point is there should be a lot of newspapers. Exactly, right. So that's the difficulty. Like, we, we have this one company that's, uh, you know, at the center of our news diet. And that, from what I can tell, their power is only increasing. Yeah. Um, You know, there are sort of potential competitors to Facebook, things like Snapchat. But Facebook sort of owns so much of kind of like what we think of the social web. Like beyond the Facebook app, there's uh, Facebook Messenger, which is super popular, Instagram, which they also own. And WhatsApp, which is uh, an extremely popular uh, messaging app. And so if you think about all those things and sort of what they can learn about you and how they can direct news, you know, just direct kind of media through it, um, they have a lot. They have more power, I think, than kind of any other media company that that has ever been. Farhad, we go far and wide, as you always do in your, your New York Times technology columns. I want to thank you. Thanks so much. Farhad Manju. This was him. First time on the show in person. What a wise, wise man. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. And now the spiel. KWCH Channel 12 going live to the Yules Camp campaign event. We have Emily and Hutchinson following Representative Yules Camp's campaign. She is outside their watch party. Reporters were kicked out by the campaign earlier this evening. Emily? All right. Emily will not be bringing you that news. But KSN-TV Wichita has the results. 
The incumbent Kansas Congressman Tim Hulskamp will lose his seat after losing the primary last night to opponent Roger Marshall and after kicking the media out of his watch party last night and publicly saying that the media should have done more to cover his campaign, we're breaking down what it all means for Kansas in Washington. Maybe it's okay and a silver lining for Yule's camp, a man who sought to remedy lack of media coverage by expelling the media from his event. It's okay that he not be allowed to return to work as a representative in the federal government, as his major complaint was that there's just too much federal government. Well, now the government has one less Hules camp. Maybe that's a start. This wasn't an unmotivated rebuke to the Tea Party. This is kind of a rational decision by Kansans. Nothing's the matter with Kansans. Kansans want less federal spending except when it comes to agriculture, i.e. the major business in Kansas's first congressional district that Yule's camp represents or once represented. So Yule's camp was forced to attack his primary opponent by a familiar word that many Republican primary challengers hear. Political science professor Russell Fox describes that label. He was trying to find ways to accuse Marshall of being a Republican in name only. So he's a fake conservative. He doesn't really stand for the issues that I stand for. Republican in name only or rhino. For the last six years, that has been an incendiary charge among conservatives. Republicans have had to fend away challenges from the right and prove that they're conservative enough not to be called rhinos. So does Jules Camp indicate that that total trend is abating? Maybe his loss tells us something about the influence of Trump, showing even Republican primary voters the limits of firebrand outsiderism. Could be Kansas-specific. You know, yesterday in Kansas, Governor Sam Brownback's policies have been so unpopular that all these moderates swept away many of his acolytes who are in the state government. All that could be true. I'd say let's not necessarily think that the Trump phenomenon has peaked. That's why a Trumpish guy like Hules Camp has lost, because elsewhere in the Midwest, reality television and world wrestling entertainment coincided. This was no rebuke of a rhino. This was the election of a rhino. As Kansans were tilting towards the center, the Republican voters of Dearborn, Michigan, chose as their candidate... Terrence Guido Guerin, a professional wrestler in the WWE, who wrestles under the name Rhino. It's Rhino! Yeah! Rhino has joined the team! Rhino, in the WWE, this guy spells his name R-H-Y-N-O, but he seems to be a living rebuke to the idea of mellowing of conservative passions. But he was nominated as the Republican in an overwhelmingly Democratic district in Dearborn to serve in the Michigan State House. So maybe it's not that big a deal. But Rhino, the wrestler, is a fairly huge deal. I went to his Wikipedia page. It has over 6,500 words and includes 149 footnotes. By way of comparison, the Second Congo War runs 400 words fewer than the Wikipedia page of the wrestler Rhino and has 100 fewer footnotes. Here's a fact I learned on Rhino's Wikipedia page. Rhino debuted in Juggalo Championship Wrestling at the 2004 music festival Gathering of the Juggalos, where he defeated Abyss. Here's a fact I learned on the Second Congo War Wikipedia page. 
It was the deadliest war in African history. The Second Congo War directly involved nine African countries, as well as approximately 20 separate armed groups. The war in its aftermath had caused 5.4 million deaths, though not enough disease, starvation, and horribleness to pass rhino, at least in terms of quantity of Wikipedia page. All right, so let's say Rhino, the ascent of the Rhino, is but one data point. He's unlikely to win his office. But there is a state where the race for governor is considered a toss-up. It's Missouri. And the Republican candidate for governor of Missouri, one Eric Greitens, has gone super macho. Eric Greitens is under attack from Obama's Democrat machine. They're trying to steal another Missouri election. But Eric Greitens is a conservative warrior, and when he fights back, he brings out the big guns. What you see is Eric Greitens seated at a mass of, I don't know, it could be a Browning M3 anti-aircraft gun, and he's letting her rip. Greitens is a former Navy SEAL. He has also been a Rhodes Scholar, a boxer, a black belt in Taekwondo. He's traveled on humanitarian missions around the world, and he documented the lives of street children in Bolivia and refugees from genocide in Bosnia, Rwanda, and Zaire. All that stuff seems to be crowded out when you're raining down round after round of policy-oriented hellfire from above. Greitens did not threaten to shoot anyone on Fifth Avenue, but if he were to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, he could probably do it using that piece of weaponry if he started off on Madison or even Park. But all of this may be for naught because it could be true that come November, the poor performance by the candidate at the top of the ticket will wind up taking down the Navy SEAL and the Rhino. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is willing to trade goods and services for a pastry crust filled with a savory custard. In other words, engage in a quid pro quiche. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, willing to trade consideration for a small deciduous tree that bears a palm fruit similar in appearance to a pear. He'd do a quid pro quince. Andy Bowers offers a show on the Panoply Network for which he is chief content officer in exchange for a hard clam, yes, a quid pro quahog. The gist, I'll give it all away for a 1951 American epic made by MGM and Technicolor starring Deborah Kerr, yes, a quid pro quo vadis. Umpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.